Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the third season of the Bitcoin Takeover podcast. I am Vlad, and my guest today is Shaytan, who is the most spontaneous guest I have ever had. I just wrote a message on Twitter in which I announced that I'm looking for guests, and he just sent me a short introduction of himself, and I said, sure, when are you available? I told him that I can do it right now, and about 15 minutes later, here we are talking. Hello, Shaytan. Hello. Nice to meet you, Vlad. So how did you get into Bitcoin? For how long have you been around? And you told me you have been since the beginning. And what is it about it that you like so much? Uh, I adore its, its trust, really. It's, a, it's, you know, in a world that you don't see trust very much at all. Like it's every, everything is really untrustworthy nowadays. And it has the ability to be very, very disruptive in a monetary sense. And that attracted me to it um, as well. But I didn't really, you know, with Bitcoin, people don't really grasp like um, Bitcoin. It takes a while. It really does take a while for, for to, to grasp all the aspects and to sink in just how disruptive it truly can be. Um, I was really... Uh, but really, I keep thinking back to like when uh, the Pirate Bay was on. And this was, I think, 2007, 2008 or so. And the, um, I forgot his name, but he wrote reply letters to the corporations like Disney and Warner Brothers that were sending him letters to tell him to stop and, you know, stop your website. And, and these letters that he wrote were just, they were hilarious, number one. And they were like, yeah, you don't, you know, I'm not American, loser, you know, go home. They were very insulting to these big corporations. Now, I thought that was inspirational to the nth degree. Like I was, I was just blown away by what they were doing and that they had the, really the balls and the veracity to actually send those letters and, and really take on these people. And I, I, really, I really think that that was a big moment in, in, in like culture. Quite honestly, and and that was you know BitTorrent. They were using that technology, um, and then you know fast forward a couple of years, and I'm playing Magic: The Gathering, and I'm supposed to be playing with some pals at a comic store um, one night. This is probably late 2009, and I walk in, and nobody's nobody's sitting there where they normally sit. They're all sitting around a computer. And I walk up and I'm like, what are you guys doing? They're like, well, we're trying to set up this wallet and try to get something called Bitcoin in here and try to figure this all out. I'm like, well, what is it? What, what are you talking about, Bitcoin? And uh, they're like, it's, it's an online currency. It's like a money. I was like, okay, well, how much is it worth? And they're like, nothing really. It's a cent or whatever. And I was like, well, what are you guys doing? <laughs> what are you guys even messing around with it for then? <laughs> But um, uh, I, I ended up leaving because there were so many people there, and I just I just didn't really understand it. And then I went home and researched a little bit more, researched a little more, and then WikiLeaks got involved. Um, but I've always followed it, you know, pretty much since that that point in time in 2009. And you know, you can't really put the, you know, the hopes that people want to put on Bitcoin until it can prove itself for a while. So, you know, I'm not, I didn't want to jump on and promote it extensively 
uh, if it had only been around for a year or two, because I know like computer technology and you know you just you just have to mine the blocks for a few years and, and make sure that, that the protocol is is robust and secure that is as it is. And once once you know that came and that conclusion came, you know, and I've just been all about Bitcoin as far as you know disrupting the, the monetary system and, and political nature of the world. Um, the centralized, you know, fiat printing is, is, uh, it's not necessarily a bad thing, quite honestly, Vlad. I think that it wouldn't, it wouldn't be so bad if they would just, you know, stick to a certain number. So you say, you know, we're going to print 20 trillion and that's it. Then I think everybody would be fine with it. You know, even if it was just simply fiat, um, I think it's just the point that they keep printing for bombs and warfare and, and just not for the people. It's just so insane to me. Like it's, it's, it's simply debt that comes out of, you know, it's debt. And so I mean, it's very, 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 very important. I think it's like super, super duper important for the human experience that they really understand, you know, monetary policy and things such as those natures. Like they use it every day. I mean, they work their, their whole lives for something that constantly goes down in value and they don't even realize it. It's just like, wow. So, you know, that's, that's, that's my angle, pretty much. Well, you, you covered a lot in there, and I'm thinking what I should ask you about more specifically. Mm-hmm. How come you didn't get involved into mining? As most of the people I talked to who got in early were actually curious on how they, they can actually mine Bitcoin. Or they had a friend who was mining it and was so happy to send this worthless digital currency to everybody. And some of them happened to hold about 10 Bitcoins until 2017 and then realized, hey, look, uh, I can actually buy a car or something with this money. Uh, I have, you know, I mined it, you know, probably about four years ago for a period of time. Um, I was, you know, I was in a happy marriage with children and, and money wasn't really a concern for me. I did research the mining aspect of it when I was researching and I thought it was very interesting. Um, but the, the mining aspect is, you know, I'm just really not a technical computer technical fellow. You know, I, I really am more of a philosophical observer. Um, and those kind of technical computer, programming language type things are just um, something that I need to work on. You know, it's something that, uh, but back then it was, I was just furthest from, from, from that, you know, I, the politics and the philosophy and that kind of thing was much more interesting. To me. So what kind of political dimension did you find in Bitcoin back in 20, 2009? Uh, that was, <laughs> Generally, there were nerds, you know, like myself, but generally it was nerds. It was a nerd culture, that kind of really computer savvy person, you know, hacker type, um, cyberpunk, you know, really, you know, cyberpunk, you know, hacker, that kind of, that, that kind of person. And um, it was, a, you know, a movement, you know, more so than any kind of monetary thing. It wasn't. Back then, it had really nothing to do with, you know, the people that I were around. It really didn't really, the money thing was just like this weird 
strange thing that it was going up in value so much, quite honestly. But that also added to its power, you know, as a, as a disruptor. So, you know, people got on board with it, you know, it's okay. So now it's, you know, worth more and more, you know, it's good for us too. So it's, it's kind of like, um, like this, uh, symbiotic thing with the political nature and then the monetary value of Bitcoin. Okay. It's interesting that a lot of people got in because of the price and they saw some kind of news article about the price increase and they got curious, they fell down the rabbit hole. And at first it was just greed and the idea that they can maximize their investment in US dollars. And then they understood that there is something bigger going on and that at some point they might even become some kind of financial elites of the world if we happen to switch to this decentralized currency. But the idea that the people who got in first were actually interested in the underlying technology and wanted to experiment with it and didn't care much about the money is actually what tells Bitcoin apart from all the other altcoins. As every fork of Bitcoin is basically an attempt to capitalize on something And it's not as immaculate in terms of conception. Right. You can say that they're trying to experiment with some kind of new privacy technology, like it happens in the case of Grin, but they still have some money which funded the project and they have some kind of expectations in regards to profitability, which was not present in Bitcoin. Nobody expected it to blow up. Maybe a few people knew about it and had this type of expectation. But it, right from the beginning, pretty much. You know, I also so. like to think that the nerds who got in early on and the computer scientists who believed in it when it was basically worth nothing will be around even when maybe it fails as a project, if that ever happens. Right, yeah. You know, the, you know, you know I have a dirty little secret that I have to, regarding the monetary aspect of Bitcoin is I, you know, the thing that really shocked me about Bitcoin on the monetary side was that it just, it blew by gold like gold was lead. That shocked me. That really did. Like, you know, I thought, you know, Bitcoin, eventually when it hit the price of gold, it's going to really hit a, a wall. Like people are going to say, okay, well, that's gold. And, and it, would, it would at least take some time to pass gold, I thought. You know, this is in my mind. So I thought I had time. <laughs> But the fact that Bitcoin just ripped past gold, like it was nothing. Like it was just like, see you later, gold. I was, I was shocked. I was truly was shocked at that point in time. I was like, wow, that is really, 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 really powerful what I just witnessed. Like it just, it just made gold look like it was just nothing. It was, there was no, no hesitation, no stopping at the price, nothing. It was just, whoosh, whoosh, bye. And that, that was pretty shocking to me, quite honestly. Well, you're making the comparison with the gram of gold, I guess, or the ounce of gold. But a gold bar or the market cap of gold are still bigger. And those are still milestones that we want to accomplish. Right. No, I agree. But it was just um, just a shock to me. I just thought it really, uh, you know, it really uh, was a great thing. I was like, man, this is fantastic honestly but it was just um as somebody that is monetarily conservative um 
and socially liberal. It was just, you know, shocking to me, quite honestly. So uh, you, you mentioned that you're into philosophy. Yeah. You like to look into the more philo philosophical side of affairs. So how do you see a society in which we have attained that point of hyper-Bitcoinization that people talk about? And we basically use Bitcoin as a currency on a daily basis, maybe on the second layer to lightning. You know, it, it's, it's really tough. It's really tough. I would like to say that, you know, our monetary policy, hyper Bitcoin, like a Bitcoin standard, where all money is, you know, value and it's, there's no fiat printing in it or anything like that. But You, you must give fiat some credit in the fact that it has solely, that's really solely the reason of all this advancement in human, in, in the human condition right now, in all this technology, you know, because governments can print fiat and invest and, and do all these things is the reason we have, you know, this, this new modern future, quite honestly. I mean, if you don't, so it's a tightrope. So I do, I, You know, I don't necessarily think a straight up gold standard is, is great. Um, but then obviously printing money fiat into oblivion is not great either. So I think there is a happy medium to where you, you can have growth. Um, but then, you know, because on a big, cause something like a Bitcoin standard, I really worry about people, quite honestly. You know, it's tough. Sometimes I think about it in terms of whales, and I know that there are people who own hundreds of thousands of BTC, and they're not going to sell it anytime soon. And sometimes if the price doesn't go below, below a certain threshold, it's because these people are not selling. Right. And there is a Romanian guy who owns about 600,000 or something. And he got in very early. He's some sort of computer programmer. He was famous a few years ago because of his blog and because he was very vocal in some respect. And I, I think of these people and I realize, okay, so we, we reach this point where Bitcoin is the dominant currency of the world. Are, are they going to give anything to charity or how do you make them move the money that they own in such large amounts? It's so obscene. It's much more than they will need in a few generations. Right. I mean, Oxfam, you know, the, if you read their latest reports, you know, that 28 people have half of everything on earth. Like, wow. I mean, that's so repugnant and disgusting. I don't understand why people don't quit all their jobs and stand up and say, what is happening? Well, how can 28 people have every half of everything right now? <laughs> and, you know, that's obviously one of the problems with fiat is when you overprint it, you have concentration of wealth and, Et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's just a human nature thing. So if you have, you know, people with, you know, 600,000 Bitcoin, they're not really going to share it either. Yeah, but I'm still stuck in this utopian mindset and we're having a philosophical discussion. And I'm thinking right now that maybe that Bitcoiners will be much more generous and willing to donate and help bring people out of poverty. And we saw many initiatives with Venezuela and we saw the legal fund of Hadlonat, which went to $100,000 in about a week. And these kind of initiatives give, give me hope. 
that right. we might agree that that those are excellent examples and that the charity and in, in, in the culture is fantastic um but there are other examples too like i mean even andreas antonopoulos who said that he didn't have any bitcoin then all of a sudden he had a lot of bitcoin after he said that um so i i do agree with you and i and i agree that i think crypt cryptocurrency bitcoin um offers people the chance to really feel confident in their charity right so you know where it's going you know even if it was you know say united way say you know we're not going to use fiat now we're going to use bitcoin i think everybody would be happy because you know they would send them a lot more because they can track it you know you could you could see where they're sending the money and how it's being used and, and whatnot and that would that's much better than how it works right now as far as charities are concerned Oh, yeah. And as a guy who donates to UNICEF, because I like to think that animals and children are the only beings in this world who cannot really empower themselves. They don't possess the means for it. And I donate money to them. And sometimes I think that the money that I donate every month goes to some kind of meetings that they have in five-star hotels so they can brag about their achievements, which may or may not exist. And I have also seen how the United Nations likes to pump their statistics to look like they have achieved a lot of development by replacing numbers with percentages so that it looks more impressive. Right. Yeah. I mean, so there's, there's definitely a lot of issues and Bitcoin can help a lot of that. I wish, I wish, I wish charities would, I wish governments would say, you know, charities must use that. <laughs> that would be nice. But then governments obviously probably get a cut too of fiat somehow, some way. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's always people really need to participate in the communities that they're a part of, you know, like um, I'm considering moving to Uruguay because, you know, they, they are socially liberal or open, uh, but yet, 90, I think the latest, uh, the latest election had 96% partition, uh, participation rate in their elections. That is astounding. I don't think that's a healthy metric. And I don't think Uruguay is an established democracy. They're actually a constitutional republic. Well, even the authoritarian regimes are constitutional. No, they're definitely a democracy, yeah. Like it's constitutional, it's, it's basically like America nowadays and down in Uruguay. And the, the latest, the latest um, election, they had a 95 to 96% partition participation rate in that election. And here in America, it was like 50% or less. And that's, people really need to participate, you know, the, the, I mean, that's really, they have to understand their monetary policy and participate. And it's like Andrew Jackson, like he should be a Bitcoin God because, you know, he, he ran on a, a ticket that said the banks are me and he won. And he led us into a, a period of prosperity for this country. And I think when he left, he said something like, okay, I'm leaving you this country here with no banks and prosperity and it's up for you to keep it. And 
you know, it, unless you're, you're really vigilant and active on that, you're going to find that a bank will crop up on every corner in every city and really take your wealth from you. And that's what I see today. I see a bank on every corner. And, and it's just so important that people really participate in the community, community quite honestly. Um, and, you know, I was being kind of hypocritical on that myself and my daughter has really forced me to, to get out and interact and, and, and with the community. And, and today is, an, is, an, is an example of that. Um, cause I am an only child and, you know, I, I was a golfer for, for state champion golfer and was by myself for, for a lot. So I'm more of an observer that just, that just kind of observes and, and, and now I'm trying to, my daughter's forcing me to start to interact more. <laughs> she thinks I have some things to offer. So she's humbled me in that aspect and said, dad, you know, you need to, you need to get out there. And so here I am. Oh yeah. And I, I guess part of the Bitcoin philosophy is that we should bring back communities and care much more about what's going on in our area. And by the way, you live in Arizona, right? Yeah. Yeah. What is it like to be a Bitcoiner in there? Can you actually survive if you have one BTC and you want to eat or sleep somewhere? Yeah, it's not, it's getting worse in, in Phoenix right now because everybody from California is coming here. California is totally and completely out of control and their tax situation, you know, the homeless situation. I mean, it's just a really, it's kind of degrading California and, and quick and heightened pace. Um, and so we're getting a lot of, of people moving in from California, which is raising our property values, raising rents. So you could survive for probably a year on one Bitcoin right now. If you were really I mean, if I can make payments with Bitcoin, if oh, I yeah. can find ATMs yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you can you could do that. As a matter of fact, Arizona was one of the first states, if not the first state in the United States, where you can pay your state tax with Bitcoin. That's so, impressive. That's, there's that too. Um, so yeah, you could uh, you could survive absolutely. Usually, when I ask this question to people, they tell me, "Oh, not really. It's very niche, and most people haven't even heard about it." And you're going to have a hard time. No, no. I mean, you could, uh, there's many angles. I mean, you could use, um, you can obviously use a payment network um, to transfer your Bitcoin instantly as you make the payments. But you can also, I, I also use it as an opportunity to really talk to people and see if they'd like to barter. Say, hey, listen, you know, you got this product and I've got Bitcoin. If you know what it is, then we can talk. Uh, if you don't know what it is, you should know what it is. Uh, it's a, you know, at the very least, it's a brand new asset class that, you know, I mean, think about that. Like I try to tell people it's a brand new asset class. Wake up. Like that doesn't happen every day. <laughs> oh, a new asset class just came around. It's, it's a, a very big deal. So, I mean, I use it also as an opportunity to talk to people. But yeah, you know, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have really any issue if you wanted to do that, quite honestly. Okay. Uh, I asked this question usually because there was an article in Bitcoin magazine and the reporter tried to live on Bitcoin for a week in 
Silicon Valley, and he was unable to. And oh. the conclusion was that the payments adoption has lowered since 2013 when they first conducted this experiment. And Silicon Valley is this experimental place where they, they like to use all these new technologies in finance and everything else. And it was also mostly due to the ICO bubble and how every store is trying to use their own token issued on the Ethereum blockchain and maybe give you discounts if you use their own token and wacky stuff like that. No, I mean, it, it, it definitely, I think less actual retailers are accepting Bitcoin directly. Um, so that, that could actually probably maybe be the case uh, that they're correct in that. Um, but you, you, you have the ability nowadays to convert your Bitcoin into a payment network fairly easily. I mean, there's, unfortunately, you might have to give up custody to do that of your Bitcoin. Uh, I think I only know of one project that you can keep custody. It's a non-custodial payment platform uh, on the Visa network. And so the, the option is out there for you to retain custody and use the Visa network. Um, so that there's that as well. Um, but you're right. As far as direct Bitcoin payments, um, there might be a little bit less. Uh, I see that changing though in the future with the expansion of and the knowledge growth of Lightning Network. Um, and once it becomes a little bit more user-friendly and, and um, it becomes bigger and, and it just gets worked out more. Um, and that's, that's what I see. So I think more direct payments will, will, will start coming online with the Lightning net, Network rather than just the traditional Bitcoin. Um, Speaking of Lightning, what was your experience with it? Uh, it wasn't, it was just one, uh, one time and it was fine. I mean, I guess uh, I haven't really uh, used Lightning very much at all. Uh, I use... Like I said, I use the non-custodial payment platform. So I just use the, so I basically make my payments uh, on the Visa network rather than direct payments. Um, but it could, you know, it, I guess it was confusing to people because you have to send a request, I guess, how that works. Yeah, you have to send invoices with the amount. So it, it just takes time for, you know, those things to be understood and um, kind of integrated um, and worked on. Um, but so far, so good as far as Lightning Network. The, the network seems to be expanding. Um, I'm not too sure if really recently it contracted a little bit, um, but that's also a natural part of things. It'll expand and contract and expand again. Um, so it's just, uh, it's just exciting, quite honestly. It's really exciting. You know, because I do see Lightning Network probably being able to, you know, be integrated into like big time companies. Like they'll be able to like integrate a Lightning node for their payments and accept payments directly with Bitcoin instead of third parties. Um, so I think it's just going to be a matter of time, quite honestly, just here within a year or two, you know, you'll see a lot more, you know, retailers and a lot more people accepting 
uh, Bitcoin via the Lightning Network. Oh, yeah. I, I can see that happening. I, I've tried some solutions and they were worthy of the name Lightning. Right. I know Jameson Lop is doing great work over at Casa and he's coming out with new products virtually like weekly. Um, and that's great too, you know, because you want people to be running their own node and then um, stop and decrypt just released her hashnet release paper that, you know, regarding um, hashing protocols and Bitcoin pools and stuff like that. So if we can um, get that, that seems very good as well. Kind of Is it really her in the case of stop and decrypt? What was that? Is it a her in the case of stop and decrypt? You know, it looks like her. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, the I'm old just... avatar used to be that of a stormtrooper. I know, yeah. No, I saw our old avatar on the median, uh, medium uh, post. But uh, I'm the same way. I'm a them kind of a fellow or lady as well. So. Even Giacomo Zucco identifies as a seven foot tall woman. Right. You know, it's, you know, it doesn't, I'm not offended by anything like that. If somebody wants to call me a woman, I respect women. I like women. It doesn't bother me. I don't know. Like the whole masculine thing is kind of strange to me. I mean, it's you know, masculinity and being a man is, has nothing really to do with how much hair you have or the muscles on your body. It's really willpower and the drive like to do you know, to provide and, and be a man, quite honestly. Oh, you should tell that to Ragnar. Right. That guy loves his guns, loves his muscles, loves to eat steak. Right. It's willpower. I think that's really the thing, like having a really strong inner core. Um, but yeah, Ragnar seems like a great guy too, you know? Yeah. He's, uh, he loves his guns and his Bitcoin. That's, that's fine. That's fine. You know, I love, you know, I just love genuine people. You know, I just absolutely love it. Like, as long as you know where they're coming from, Vlad, like, you don't know where people are coming from anymore. Like, even if you tell me, like, if you, if some guy walks up and says, you know, I'm a full-blown commie red and I love Stalin and I'd be like, man, that's great. I know where you're coming from. Let's talk. Like, how did you come to those views, viewpoints? You know, let's have a beer, you know, rather than, oh, you're an idiot. No, no, I know where you're coming from now. So this is great. We can, we can. I could find out why you come from that point and how you came to that conclusion. Maybe I can affect your future thoughts on the matter. But it's just being honest and knowing where people are coming from. I don't see a lot of that anymore. It's like, I don't know where people are. You know, they say one thing and do another. And it's just like, wow, this is crazy. Like Craig Stephen Wright. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, let's not get sued today. Right, yeah. He's still in the middle of a lawsuit as we speak. Right, yeah. Yeah, no. And I really don't want to get involved with it. I'm no Peter McCarmack to actually challenge him and say, come on, I'm going to call you a fraud, sue me. I think that's childish. You can right. hold your opinion without challenging somebody to sue you and then trying to pose as... First of all, he tried to look strong, then he kind of turned himself into a victim. 
And then when the situation turned out to be in his favor and Craig Wright seems to have some issues in court, he started being braggacious once again. Braggacious. How do you pronounce that well? Uh, braggadocious. Braggadocious. I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, uh, yeah, I think, you know, you're right a little bit, you know, I can't disagree with anything you said right there. Um, and, you know, I, I probably would have come out with some different type of wording if I really needed to put it out there. But, you know, I don't, you know, I, you know, I did it on Twitter, actually. I posted Craig Rice fraud on Twitter um, just because, quite honestly, he is, and, and people need to know that. And they really, you know, they really need to know that, that, you know, that that's not really what who they want to really be following. And the Bitcoin SV thing is just, I mean, we're talking about people's hard-earned money. You know what I mean? Like people, you know, slave and work and not saying slave, but toil. Toil is a better word. It's people toil and work and for their, for their money. And, and you know, I, I really feel bad for them if they, you know, put it in something that, that is not Bitcoin, shall we say that. And, and so that's why I think people really should know. But you're right. I think, yeah. Maybe if you're on a public platform like that, if, if I was running a show, I wouldn't say it. Like, so if I had a following or influence of that nature, I don't, I wouldn't, I would come right out and say it like, like Peter did. Um, just because, you know, you're inviting a lawsuit and he got sued. <laughs> right? It's pretty simple. And it's unnecessary because most people know that already, quite honestly. It's not like that's any kind of big news headline that Peter broadcasted. You know what I mean? It's not like, He's, he's uh, letting us know any new news. I think the whole situation has to do with the fact that he is also British and they had a better understanding of what the laws are in Great Britain and how you don't have to prove that you're something in order to make people... Uh, I don't know how I, sh- how I should phrase it, but the liberal laws in Great Britain are kind of messed up. And if you accuse somebody of offending you and being detrimental to your public image, you don't have to prove that you are the opposite of what they are saying. You don't right. have to prove anything. And uh, that, Peter, that's why it's flawed. Peter would definitely know that being from London. And I think obviously um, Craig is living there now. He would know that. Um, so I don't know if, if, if it was a ploy to try to get more listeners on a show because he knew he would probably get sued if he said it. Uh, and that brings attention, obviously. Um, but, you know, I'm not going to say that that was the case. Uh, I don't like to be pessimistic in that sense. But you're right, it probably wasn't the smartest thing to do. But who's to, who's to say that it wasn't, though? You know, his, his, his listen listenership is up, I'm sure. And... Uh, and he obviously got the funds to fight it. So I just think it, uh, it just was unnecessary. Like it just brings this whole unnecessary thing into the community that really doesn't need to be there. And it really isn't serving any purpose other than like ego. Sometimes I, I think from this perspective as if, what if people who have never heard of Bitcoin and have no idea what's going on suddenly stub- stumble upon one of these threads where 
people like Craig Wright and his following argue with Bitcoiners. And what kind of impression are they going to have of what we do and what we are? Right. You're right. I mean, it's, it's pretty, pretty crazy. It looks like a cult from the outside. Uh, I wouldn't go that far. Um, it, you know, it may look amusing or maybe, you know, adolescent sometimes, but I wouldn't say cultish. Um, I don't know, maybe a little bit though. It'd be interesting. You know, I, I think, um, I don't really think it's a cult because, you know, Bitcoin isn't really, you know, it takes other people for Bitcoin. Like there is no Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin can't propagate it, like talk about itself. Bitcoin can't promote itself really. So that's really how cults are formed is like, you know, Coca-Cola is a cult because they marketed themselves that way. And Monster is a cult because, you know, that how, you know, like that's the new marketing thing is make your product a cult. But Bitcoin doesn't have any marketing really. It doesn't, it's not, you know, it doesn't have a, you know, essentially a marketing brain. So it's everybody else that's, that would be turning it into a cult and not, Bitcoin, strangely. Um, but I don't think that really is the case. I think, um, I mean, I think there are some, some people in the Bitcoin culture that are, you know, obviously super duper duper diehard Bitcoin only maximalist. And quite honestly, that's fine. I don't have any problem with them. Um, I do think that there will be other protocols that do make it and it won't just be Bitcoin. Because right? I mean, um, you know, the Bitcoin for me, obviously was, like I said, from the beginning, you know, something that is disruptive that, that, that will bring down, you know, the, the money printing and how detrimental that is to the human existence you know, of everyone on the planet. Um, so that's, that's, you know, but the maximums, you know, I don't, I don't have any problem with them because, you know, they're saving people that might get into something that that's not Bitcoin. That, that might, you know, that might be BitConnect, shall we say, or something of that nature. Um, you know, so the, the other protocols are something that are, that are fun, that, you know, but need to be bored out, just like Bitcoin has been born out. And we'll see what happens. Okay, so my next question for you has to do with your belief in BTC as opposed to all the other tickers which emerged in 2017, as you have been around since 2009, maybe not in terms of financial involvement, but at least in terms of following Bitcoin. And then you saw this scaling debate and this phenomenon where everybody was trying to promote their own vision and companies that were operating with Bitcoin and miners we're trying to increase the block size, knowing that this also centralizes the protocol and brings them more control over it. Yeah. 2017 was absolutely insane. I mean, every single day was insane. Whether it be some new coin or some new ICO or some new story or some new, you know, some new exchange, you know, disappearing. Or I mean, 2017 was just mind-blowing. It really was. It was just fascinating. Um, and then, uh, I, th that's all I'm remembering is 2017. How every single day I would wake up and it was just, it was just something new, something crazy. It was just so exciting. Like it was just, it was just so fun. 
Um, but to, to re go back to you, what we, what was the original point? Vlad? How come you did not get lured by the narrative of big blockers? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. The, 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 the big block debate, because I, I was in the same boat essentially as trace mayor. So I, I think basically just like he did on the topic, he's like, listen, the professionals are over here and these are not the professionals. Like these are the big brain boys that you need to put your trust and your money in. And these are not them. And it's, it's really that simple. Like there's a core of a core of, of people that you, that have been working on Bitcoin for a long time. And they're very smart intellectual people. And, um, you know, they're, they're the ones that I would put my trust and money and just like trace that. I'm not, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's a really serious thing when, when, you know, it, it was weird in 17 because you could buy, you know, Trump coin and you'd make a lot of money. I mean, that was very strange. It really was. Or Putin coin or whatever it was. I mean, you could make a lot of money on any shit coin there was. Um, so it was kind of a weird situation. Um, but the people that were in Bitcoin the longest knew that it was just simply a, just a heightened situation of what has happened before because these, these cycles have happened previously. And so you were trying to tell people, you know, like, just stick with Bitcoin, <laughs> just stick with Bitcoin. And, uh, and, but then the, the, then the big block and the small block debate happened in 2017 that really, it really wasn't good because egos got into it, right? We go back to the ego thing, right? And, And, you know, people thinking that they know better than other people and, and they, their answer is the right one, and, you know, not viewing, you know, what has happened to get us to this point, you know, here we are seven, eight years into a protocol and it's still here, it's still existing, even though a lot of people don't want it to be here. A lot of powerful institutions probably don't want it to be here, but it's still here. And, and so we need to really think carefully about the future and really think You know, be very, very, very conservative with the protocol. Extremely conservative with the protocol. You know, because that's where the value is, right? And that's where the most disruption can be done. So, you know, just, and so that is really the key. I was with Trace, like, listen, these are the professionals. These are, you know, what they're saying, and, and I'm going to go with them. You know, I'm not a technical, you know, developer. So, you know, I'm not going to be out there going, you know, Bcash is the one, like, why would I, I mean, it just people that don't, don't have any development knowledge just to, to be jumping on the, you know, uh, the Bcash or BSV train. is just strange to me. Like you don't have any clue on the technology. You're, you're philosophically jumping on something that you don't even have a base understanding of in a technical sense. You know, I mean, Bcash, I mean, it was just reorged like 51% reorged like a month ago. I mean, that's insane to me. I mean, I, for, For it to have $350 in value right now after a rigor, it's just like, it's mind blowing to me why it's not $4. Why is it not $350? Because it should be. It quite honestly should be. I don't care if it's, you know, the, the payment, cash, whatever, whatever their gig is. For them to reorg and have mutability now and it not be $3, it's just, it shows us that we really need to educate more, quite honestly. You know, take the it also shows that there is a greater centralization of ownership 
And at the moment when the fork happened, I guess people who had a lot, who owned a lot of Bitcoin claimed their fork coins and then went on to dump them on exchanges. And then people like Roger Veer and Jihan Vu or whoever got involved into BCH, they bought them and they're holding them to retain as much value on the market as they can for the longest time. They're going to get burned. They're going to get burned. I, that would be my guess. But that's a, that's a great point, right? So that's why the price hasn't come down as much as I think because of the centralization. And again, if, if somebody decides to not be central in that role, then, then I mean, <laughs> I, won't, I don't want to be holding any of those coins if that's the case. Like, um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's things like that that, you know, it's too bad that it happened too, because Roger, you know, Roger was so good for so many years, Vlad. He really was. He was so good for Bitcoin. Roger was like hardcore, nice guy, send you Bitcoin. Roger was great. Roger even donated like a million dollars to a charity. I mean, who does that? I mean, really? A million bucks to a charity. You know, so, I mean, I, I feel for Roger. I really do. I really feel for Roger, you know. But Roger is not bigger than Bitcoin, and he really didn't understand that. He really did not understand that, you know. I, I think that he thought that he might have been the father of Bitcoin because of all the work that he did, and you know. He'd think that these developers were not listening to him and whatnot. And, you know, I, can't, I, you know, I get it a little bit, but still, I mean, you really have to check your ego. Like, listen, this is, this is a really big deal, and, and uh, you're not bigger than Bitcoin. And the fact that he's around right now saying that Bitcoin Cash is Bitcoin is just even more atrocious. It's like, oh, my God, Roger, what do you, you know, oh, my God. Like, I mean, at least be honest. There's, a, there's that, like, honest thing again. Like, at least be honest. Bitcoin Cash, call it me Cash or whatever, or excuse me, whatever he wants it to be called. But at least be honest and play fair. You know, if you think that your, your, your gig is a little bit better, Call it Bitcoin Cash, say it's Bitcoin Cash, and try to get the share. You know, try to propagate your coin over there, okay? And it's just so sad to see to see it go down like that, really. It's just, quite honestly, I'm just so sad by it. Well, I'm going to be here and like... Sorry. That was actually louder than you speaking. I guess you just speak softly or she screamed so loud. She, she's... Hey! Sorry. <laughs> That's fine. I'm not sure if I can take that out with some kind of noise gate in the editing, but never mind. I guess that adds up to the dynamics of this interview. Right. I'm uh, also a full-time parent at full custody, and their mother's apparently just rolled up for her day. I love you guys. Okay, so you're speaking of Roger Veer, and to some extent I agree with you as that libertarian side of him is so great. I listened to a recent interview with him, and he mentioned, he recommended some readings, and he said, you should go on and read The Law by Bastia. And I went on and read it. It's not very long. It took me about 30 minutes to read. And it was actually interesting. It was great. And it right. made me think, okay, so this guy is well-read. He's well-spoken. 
he's clearly more educated than the average person in Bitcoin. But at the right. same time, he took his ego so far that he feels like there's no turning back. Right. Right. Because I, I don't believe that he thinks he will win this fight. He has lost it. And maybe that in December 2017, when BCH became the second biggest coin in terms of market capital after it got added to Coinbase, there was some kind of hope for the big blockers. It was like a small flicker of hope that right. maybe the miners would favor them, that maybe there would, there would be something going on which the, through which the market decides that they are the worthy Bitcoiners or something. But that hasn't happened. Do you think it's a possibility that Jihan Wu just bought him off and paid him to do that so that he could sell more miners for two protocols? You think, you think that would be the case? I don't think so. I mean, Roger is kind of a control freak. I've heard that from people who worked for him. I have a friend who has a friend who used to work at Bitcoin.com. And he, he told me that there were these moments when he would get so mad that he would fire everybody. Interesting. So that sounds rather petulant. So that's probably, that's also a sign of a huge ego. We've seen, definitely seen signs of that. He tries to look humble in interviews and try to belittle himself in arguments as if he's trying to em empathize with you. But at the same time, he thinks very highly of himself. And uh, ultimately, that's what brought him down. Personally, I wouldn't mind if he just gave up on BCH and continued to promote Bitcoin, the real Bitcoin to the world. But uh, he would have to lower his ego too much. Or, I mean, he would have to, you know, be humble. He would have to, you know, and I don't see that in it, you know, I don't see that anytime soon. But I'll take what I've seen, you know, since the fork, you know, humility is, is, is definitely a virtue and he doesn't really have too, too much of that, you know, but you're right. I would like to see Roger say, you know what? I was wrong. I was wrong. And uh, I made a mistake. And uh, Bitcoin.com is now going to promote Bitcoin, BTC. And I'm back on board and I apologize about this. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this Bitcoin Cash product project and I'm going to let other people take care of it, but it won't be promoted as Bitcoin anymore. That would be just like incredible <laughs> right i think everybody would be like yay roger's back we love him again even though he's got a huge ego <laughs> right but uh, i think there is a wave right now of reformed big blockers people who supported maybe the new york agreement or bitcoin cash and they're trying to get back to the real bitcoin and the one of whom i am thinking right now is our eric Voorhees. He went to the Bitcoin 2019 conference by Bitcoin Magazine in San Francisco last month. Or was it this month? Time passes so fast. Anyway, he basically tried to somewhat apologize for his involvement in 
the New York Agreement and his idea of Segwit2x, which wasn't his, but he supported it. Right, yeah. But I, I realized that he didn't really apologize. He just tried to explain his motivations and said, uh, I own a business which would benefit from lower fees. And at the time, it was what I thought was right, but he never really, really tried to seem like he was wrong. He didn't go to that length. Right. I mean, if you're going to go to that length, you might as well just come out and say it. But he might not really feel that. Who knows? You know, he is, you know, he is right in the aspect that he, that he is running a business and, and, and it probably would have been less, you know, expensive for him. But that, then he's, he's contradicting himself if that's the case because he has always been a part of the libertarian part of Bitcoin. Like he considers it disruptive and he was a Ron Paul advocate. So he politically likes Bitcoin. So for him to say that on one aspect that he believes in Bitcoin's disruptive nature, but yet he wanted cheaper fees is, is kind of at odds, I would say. So, but I like Eric. I mean, I, I mean, I like, you know, I know where generally I know where Eric's coming from and he does, he's proactive and builds stuff and gets stuff done. And he's, I think it's a benefit to the community. I think I used to like his blog. I never read it. I don't remember what it was called. It was Bitcoin and money or something. Wait. Blog. I'm looking it up right now. Money estate. Gotcha. And sometimes he was being very philosophical and presented arguments from economists, classical liberal ones, and sometimes Austrian ones. It, it was interesting to read, but when he got into that whole New York agreement and signed it, and he pretty much seemed disingenuous. Right. It wasn't him anymore. He was saying, okay, it's a free market and we get to fork Bitcoin as many times as we want. That's not an issue. Just let the market decide because we can split it and make our own versions of it. And for a while, he was regarded as a BCH advocate. As Man, I, hope. I think BCH was very close ideologically to the Segwit2x fork. Right. A lot of the proponents just made the switch and they said, okay, there, there is already this version of Bitcoin, which is close to what we wanted to do. So why, why don't we just embrace this? Yeah, I don't get that. You know, there's a whole bunch of different, you know, teams out there that uh, have their own apparently vision. But again, it just goes back to, you know, who has been working on Bitcoin for the longest? You know, why is it around and why is it still around? It's very important. Like the security of Bitcoin is like paramount importance. Like if you're going to have monetary markets run on Bitcoin and you're going to have you know, billions and maybe even a trillion dollars running on a Bitcoin network, then it's going to have to be damn secure, right? It's going to have to be like vetted. And I don't think people really get that. Like, you know, I mean, it's got to be super secure. I mean, it's really does. And there has to be no question about that at all. Like the algorithm, you must be able to trust. 
and and uh, for people to just say, yeah, we can have as many forks at this, that, and we can do this and that. And it's like, man, you don't, you're not really getting this whole thing, are you? Like, or you're getting it in a greed sense, you know? And, and we don't, I don't know, you know, most Bitcoiners that have been for a long time aren't really, you know, don't really identify with that. It was more like occupy, you know, take down the system. And it's a racist monetary system. And that's, that's why a lot of people were in Bitcoin at the beginning. And I think Eric was too, at the beginning, at the beginning, I'm just, I don't, I don't know where he kind of shifted gears there, but I think he's back. He'll be all right. I like him as a person, but I don't agree with his ideas sometimes. And it feels sometimes like he has an agenda which is strange, even at the end of the conference, the conclusion that he had was that they should be, uh, and, and by they, I mean that the other person involved in the debate was Eric Lombroso, Lombroso, or how do you pronounce it? Yeah, Eric, yeah, he seems like a really, really nice guy. He's very nice, but Eric told him that, I mean, Eric Voorhees, E-R-I-K, told him that it's better to, hold the conversations in person as opposed to writing tweets. And I disagree with that. I think that when bigger decisions are to be made, it shouldn't be just a few people discussing in person and trying to settle their differences. The fact that we as a community see what's going on and it's all transparent and we can intervene, we can present our own points of view and take sides that's a feature of Bitcoin, not a bug. I agree. I totally agree that it should be open and transparent and ideas should be expressed freely within the community. I agree uh, that there are trolls involved. I know that there are a lot of disingenuous accounts which get bought. And I'm looking at 2BSV right now. A lot of people have been bought to shill that shitcoin. I don't, yeah, that's another thing. Like, I just found out, like, one of the old BTC guys, like, is his, he's back with his account, I think, was his, his tweet. Like, I'm, my, this is my account again. Like, <laughs> really? Like, what happened? You sold it? Like, you sold your identity Twitter account, and then now you have it back. Like, I mean, wow. Right? And now you're telling us about it. Like, wow. And, like, it's okay. You think it's okay? Like, that, that kind of stuff is fine. It just, it just seems so, so, so strange to me. I don't know. But yeah, no, you're right. <laughs> but, but Eric Voorhees, he's, you know, he's, he, I think he's been, he's been good. And I don't know, he will, he'll, he'll never do something of that nature. Like I don't see Eric ever doing something of like uh, that, but he, he uh, you know, I think he just, you know, he was trying to get shape shift and I guess make some money. He got a little greedy and, and, uh, and now what did he tell uh, Lombroso at the end there? Yeah, I, I'm paraphrasing, so I don't have any, any direct quotations, but it was something along the lines that they should be speaking more in person as opposed to tweeting at each other. No, so I totally agree. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, Rag I think Ragnar had a big problem with that, too. Like, who gets invited to the roundtable? Satoshi's roundtable meeting. 
and uh, you know certain you know certain things like that are you know I think it's just kind of human nature though you know people want to feel you know important and and um, and that's just kind of like how things happen um, but I, I agree with you 100% that you know it should be transparent and more people should should be invited and the, the more open the better you know and regarding 2017 and the big block debate, you know, that was a really strange thing too, because this is kind of like all new and people don't really realize the gravity of like power plays and politics and game theory. And like, that was all coming, you know, to head like for, you know, and we're talking big, big, big money and some of these, these players and the reasons for their, for their views. So, I mean, it was a pretty, you know, pretty big deal too. And so you know, for, for the, for the, the core group of guys to, to stand firm and, and go through it and get through it. I think, it, you know, Bitcoin right now is, is better than it's ever been. Oh, I agree with that. And if you look at the hash rate, I think it reached an all time high about last week. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. <clears throat> so it's, uh, it's about the hash rate has bounced back nicely too. Yeah. All time highs. And people trust in it to a greater extent than they used to. And they, they don't see the speculative dimension as much. They can see that this will be around for a few more years at least. The cryptography is solid. It has proven to work for such a long time. There are institutions that are interested in issuing assets i'm not sure if they want to do tokens yet i spoke to giacomo zucco and his firm is involved in facilitating that to a third layer but they they offer what do you call them mm. color coins not yeah that that will be workable sometime in the future on a second layer or third layer but they're offering features and oh, trading desks that's what i was okay. looking for okay, yeah they're offering okay. trading desks so that you can go to your bank and say i want to invest in bitcoin and they're going to let you file a piece of paper fill that in and get some bitcoin but it kind of yeah. defeats the purpose well, you know, I, I think the integration with the current system is just fine. You know, like, uh, um, you know, the, the really thing that really people don't realize is that the banks right now are a real, real problem because they're in everywhere. Like glass steel, we had something in America which affects the Federal Reserve. There, there was a, an act that was enabled called the glass steel Act that separated at banking houses. So you couldn't have one bank doing another banking, like retail stuff, and one bank was an investment bank, and that's all they could do. So they couldn't really consolidate banking. And when when Clinton removed that, it was just it. It's been downhill ever since, right? And and that's what allowed the consolidation of you know all sectors, not just banking, but media and business, and because that's what these banks do, right? And it's just so important, Vlad, right? That people understand that, and they understand that that, that Bitcoin, that that is really an algorithm that you can trust. That 
that isn't going to make decisions like you are making the decisions. Like that's why it's so powerful is it leaves you in control. Um, and you know, I just, that's what I've been working my time on is just educating that on a basic sense. Like, listen, you're in control, you know, and Bitcoin is your value control and you're saving it and you have the ability to send it to anybody that you want and receive it from anybody that you want. And it's just, it's just so powerful. I get like, I always go down those philosophical rows, like, you know, like feel the power of that. Like nobody can tell you no, like, isn't that great? <laughs> I think that's wonderful. I think that's what makes it so special as opposed to having low fees as some people try to promote in their agenda. Right. You can have low fees with PayPal. Well, they're not so low. I think last week I transferred some money and the conversion rate to my local currency is terrible. And I felt ripped off. But anyway, I think if Bitcoin gets adopted to a greater extent, we're going to have very expensive on-chain fees and we're going to be pushed to move to the second layer. And that's fine. If, if, if mining gets even more decentralized, you know, you could, you could see the fees stay at least modest, um, uh, which, which wouldn't be too bad. Um, but I don't, I don't view Bitcoin as like the cash system. Like, you know, Roger keeps pushing that. Like, it's so important that you have value and you can store that value without a third party. I mean, that is just so freaking important, like the security aspect and, and being able to store that value. You know, ask Venezuela, like, the, you know, they're, they're storing their gold in the Bank of England and they, they wish they didn't. So, you, you know, that's, it has nothing to do with buying a Coke or buying a coffee or whatever. That seems silly to me. Like, I can't believe people are making such a big deal out of that. Like, listen, I mean, we're building a, a network where there's no third party. You know, so obviously transactions are going to cost more because you have to incentivize. It's very simple. Like, I mean, yeah, we get how people can get this. Like, but then they'll try to, they'll try to say, well, what about you know the poor? You said Bitcoin was supposed to help the poor. Well, then you know, just be patient. You know, we'll probably have Lightning, you know, mobile apps that will be able to do that. You know, and you know, if not, in if if there needs to be another protocol that is used for you know coffee or whatever that's that's fine as well because they're eventually going to turn it into bitcoin anyway you know and if and if, if it facilitates that easier you know then more power to it i guess but you know the, the store of value really is like paramount because you know we're going against fiat right bitcoin is like that's the enemy right and and it's not about coffee or coke or whatever you know, it's, it's that store, secure, non-third-party and confiscatable value. It's so important. And I feel like in this regard, I should tell the story of my grandparents and then my parents. And that's part of the reason why I'm into Bitcoin. As my grandparents had their wealth confiscated, they basically had everything taken away from them when the communist government came. And they were trying to build this utopian egalitarian society, which actually ended up having all sorts of 
elites and people who are privileged and living in lavish wealth while the others were starving. Right. Very animal farmish. You had the right. pigs who became the elite class and maybe that they took away the farmers and they oh, turned them into the enemy. They just but, literally not let them farm and die, just die off is essentially what happened, right? Took all, as a matter of fact, the communists came in and took all the grain seeds. I mean, they were hardcore. They went into every farm and took out everything. And it, was, it, was, it was very shocking. Like when you go research like all that, it's like, wow. It's very scary, right? <laughs> it's very scary. And so you, you, your grandparents had that happen to them in Romania? Yeah. Wow. We were not part of the USSR formally, but we were under the influence of the USSR. It was all drawn in Yalta when they had that meeting at the end of World War II. Right, yeah. And you had Roosevelt and Stalin and Churchill. Right. Basically drawing lines on the world map and saying, this country is going to be with you and you're going to take this one. And we ended up on the side of the Iron Curtain. Which was not really pleasant because my country, for the first time ever, was stepping outside of the agrarian era and was having its sort of industrialization and its first forms of capitalism. And that only took about, let me think, maybe 50 years. And then the communists came and they centralized everything. They took the wealth. and. Right. To their credit, they did build stuff. They built roads. They built homes for the workers. Have these huge gray blocks of apartments. You gotta be aware of those people, Vlad, though. You gotta be aware of those builders. They're always builders. Those damn dictators. You know. Like if you get somebody that's, that's coming up in the political ranks and he says he wants to build, you know, a lot, then I would just, I would not vote for that person. <laughs> I mean, it sounds all nice and dandy. That's probably why these people get elected. But generally, like the, the, the terrible leaders of the world, like, are fierce builders, you know, like, you know, Herod and his temple, like he built his temple. And like the, you know, they just generally are builders. As far as I'm concerned, Hitler was a big builder. He built out, obviously, the Autobahn and all kinds of different things. Big builders. Lots of building going on in those kind of things. And so communism was no different. Like, that's what they did is they built a lot, strangely. But it's interesting that my parents were in their 20s when they got married. And a year after they got married, they saw the end of communism and how it all fell. But then you had this wave of speculators getting into the market and basically it was all centralized and nothing really had a real valuation. So people who knew what to do got extremely rich overnight just by claiming some assets. At the time, if you wanted to get a piece of land, you only needed two witnesses who were living in the same city. Wow. or an apartment or something, and you'd go to a notary. Is that what you call it in the yeah. United yeah. States? 
you go to a notary and you tell that person, okay, write down that this is my piece of land. I'm claiming it. It's going to be my private property. And these people are going to sign and agree that they are witnesses of this. Wow. And some people got very rich and are basically millionaires by today's standards in terms of real estate. Right. But my parents had their wedding and they received some money at the wedding and the plan for them was to buy a car. And with the money that they were supposed to buy a car because they saved for about a year, they ended up buying a couch because the inflation came and they were not aware that this would happen. There was okay. no way to get informed at the time. You you had to rely on the state-owned media, which was telling them that it's all fine. And they didn't know to exchange their money into dollars because that's what the people who were smart were doing at the time. The dollar was a lot more stable. And the people who did exchange their money into dollars ended up being the current financial elite so just think about it, going from a car to a couch. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I can't. I mean, I did a, a monetary study from 1972 to, I think it was 2008, where uh, $176,000 um, would basically, you would need $686,000 40 years later. So basically, it was like, you know, gigantic drop in value. And, and that's a 40 year lifespan as a person's working history. So you, you know, you're, you're, you're working for toiling for 40 years. And at the very end, when you want to, when you want to, you know, retire and spend all the money that you've saved, it's now worth basically 25% of what it was. I mean, how, how, I mean, that's just so evil. I can't even begin to describe how evil that is after 40 years of working and saving and now it'll buy one quarter of what you thought it would. You know, and now it'll buy a couch or, you know, whatever. It's just, it's just so, so evil and people just have no idea. They're just completely ignorant to it. And that's what it is, is ignorance because people are smart enough to, to figure it out if they really want to. And no, but it's so easy to just ignore whatever's going on and just go on with your life. Well, now I'm worried about it. It might turn into a situation where, where your parents were in where all we have is state-owned media and they're really not going to be able to figure that out. Like freedom of the press and all that. I mean, solid information is getting shut down these days. And, you know, we might get to a point where it's just back to where, where, where that was. Like you just, you know, you're told and, and most people won't really know or understand or have a hard time figuring that out. Um, I actually had a scholarship in Sweden back in 2013 and they were bragging so much about their government financing media. They were saying, we're not allowing our press to be subjected to the perverse interests of advertisers. And we allow all publications, regardless of their political affiliation, to exist by giving them money from the state. But wow. then when they were having situations which were against the government agenda and they did not want to report, they would be ignored and nobody would cover them. 
And then right. you'd have local communities being upset at the government. Right. You know, you just can't have both ways. You know that you never can have it both ways. And just governments like to have both ways. They think they have enough power to have it both ways. And this, 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 this hypothetical myth that it's government. You know, people get into government and they believe the myth. Like all of a sudden they're a part of something that's bigger than them again. Now here we go, ego again. And they don't realize that government really means mind control. That's essentially what it means. And, and it's just, it's just so strange to me. Like after we, after history, if you view history, you're like, you know, the bigger the government gets, it's not going to get good for us. And, and I don't understand how it's very, not very clear to people, like very, very simple and, and, and like not understood. I mean, that, that's, that's really the strange thing to me. It's like how, how, how people just don't, they're not engaged in, in important things. You know, they're not engaged in their monetary policy. They're not engaged in their kids' schooling. They're, they're engaged in their kids' sports activities. You know, we get fights at, at Little League games all the time now. Like, you know, they're, they're not, you know, they're not, I mean, it's just, it's just very, very strange. And hopefully Bitcoin can actually refocus people. It's, it's, it's got that much disruptive power to like, you know, slap people across the face in a philosophical sense. It'd be like, wake up. <laughs> you know, that's another reason I like it. Like, hello, like, you know, Bitcoin's still here. It didn't go anywhere. You thought it was going to die, but it's not it's still here. Now it's worth a lot more than you thought ever thought it was going to be. You know, you might want to clue into why that is. Sometimes uh, I think about this, but then realize that we might be in the middle of an echo chamber and it's just the same people who are more likely to support the 99% movement or, you know, right. those who are enraged about the status quo and have a certain mindset about individual liberty and financial sovereignty. We are the ones who get into Bitcoin and try to understand it to a greater extent. You're going to have the masses who either get in for speculation because they want to live a better life, which I guess is okay. There's nothing wrong with wanting to have more resources for yourself. And then you have those who will never trust anything that is not guaranteed by their government. When I speak to my father, even when he's an economist and he has lived through that huge inflation of the 90s, but when I tell him about, about Bitcoin, he tells me, no, the Chinese or the Americans or the Russians are going to take it down. He's telling me that I'm foolish and I should just support something that is issued by the government. Right. And that's, to me, that is such a foolish you like can't you i mean i mean look at reality right now i mean again point to oxfam like 28 people having half the things on earth it's just like not that's not gonna work tell them. <laughs> it's not gonna work because government are made of people right and you can't trust people for the most part you know i'd like to say that you could but you can't and you can trust bitcoin that's why it's so powerful and government is run by people you know, it's very, very rare that you, to put it, to put it differently, 
people think that power corrupts no matter what. I don't agree with that. I don't think that infinite power corrupts infinitely. I believe that power attracts the absolutely corruptible. That's what it is. It's not that power corrupts. It's that power attracts the people that are corruptible. And so that's why it's always going to be like that. That's why, that's why it was so important at the birth of our country that the power be separated. That you not have enough power in any one position because that's what attracts the corruption is the power. It's not the power itself. There have been leaders that have power that have done good things. Um, maybe the Sun King was an example. There have been others. But it's not the power. It's the, that it attracts the corruptible. And, and it's just so important that, that you have something that's not human that you can trust. Or that, you know, governments, you just, eventually there's going to be people in there that you're not going to be able to trust. Even if there is right now. Even if the government's great, they're going to rotate out and eventually... It's, you know, it's just, it's, that's why you cannot put too much power or trust in, in, in government, I believe. And that's why Bitcoin is so powerful, is that, that, that issue of power and corruption in, in human nature. Exactly. But at the same time, you can find corruption amongst these who hold power in Bitcoin right now. And sometimes I, I actually think to myself about, all the power that the developers have and they they are definitely aware of it and they seem to be humble about it up to this point but they have to maintain a clean slate and make sure that they don't do anything which gets them into trouble with governments as their identities are in most cases clear and they can be found and they can be tortured they can be subjected to blackmail right and they are influential even if they cannot single-handedly change the code they can shift opinions of others they can say we need to do this and when gavin and reason wanted to increase the block size and implement what he called bip 101 and right. he had this idea that Bitcoin should scale according to Morse law and stuff like that. I think that was the result of him having too much power and becoming kind of corrupt. And people still suspect him of being a CIA agent of some sort. Right. I mean, well, I don't, I don't know why he uh, made it public that he talked to the CIA. I mean, we'll start there, but. You're absolutely right. You know, it's, it's that, you know, that, but that's a great thing that I, I really like about Bitcoin is there are really a lot of developers, you know, so some have been in for so long, like, you know, Matt, Greg, you know, so that they, they get a lot of the press, but there are a lot of, a lot of developers doing a lot of different things. Um, but again, that goes back to human nature though. Cause I think it's just a human thing that, so people will create a myth out of Greg Maxwell. Right. So they, they, mythologize him and create him into something that he's, you know, he may not want to be or is bigger than C seems. Um, even though he's a fantastic developer and has been great for Bitcoin. Um, you know, it, 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 you know, and he's never really done anything negative uh, to Bitcoin. 
but that's the great thing about Bitcoin is, is if somebody really wanted to harm it, it would be very harm, uh, hard to do so, even if he was like the, the A number one developer. Even Greg, if, if Greg Magfuls came and said, you know, I've got this, this BIP that uh, you know, activates Segwit2x and does this, all this other crazy stuff, people would tell him, hey, you, you, you're crazy, even though you're Greg Maxwell. You're not going to get that done. I mean, that's the, the, the wonderful thing about Bitcoin is like even the number, you know, one of the number one guys, the best, would get shut down if basically his idea was 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 unsound. Um, and that's wonderful. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, you don't have to you don't have to worry about the CEO coming coming home on a, a, a bender and destroying your company or <laughs> you know what I mean. Like, <laughs> It's just so fascinating. It really is. And it's also new too. Like people don't understand, like this is all like pretty new in political terms and, and, and structure and governance and, and all everything. So it, it also is, is pretty shaky. Um, but it, it's, it's held up thus far. And, and, and I, that is another thing that's great about Bitcoin is that, you know, like I said, even if you're the number one guy, if the bit that you, that you submit, it's crazy. It won't get adopted. I agree. But at the same time, the fact that when you first get in, you're so fascinated with this myth of the developer and the creator. And you look up and try to find out who's Satoshi Nakamoto. And that's a recurring obsession. I guess it's part of our human nature to look for the father of something, for that person who created and to think in terms of people as opposed to faceless identities. Well, yeah, they want to uh, mythologize, you know. Um, they want the, to, to create the myth. I mean, that's just a natural thing that happens. And, and it's not necessarily, you know, it can be dangerous. I mean, that's what even Dune was about is, you know, Wadiv is a myth and he might not have been good. For everybody but the myth was created and it was followed blind blindingly and that's never really a good thing and so i mean that's that's a great thing about bitcoin is that that didn't happen and the myth really ended up being bitcoin itself which is pretty fascinating not a person um but I think that's just a, a natural occurrence of, of human nature that people just want to mythologize things and create those kind of mythologies, really. Sure, but in every other project that we can think of right now, we can associate it with a creator. Right. And a lot of people, when they get involved into this space, they most likely buy some kind of shitcoin whether it's XRP and they're going to worship Brad Garlinghouse and what's the other guy's name? Schwartz or something. I don't even know anything about XRP. I just know that uh, it was, was it McCaleb that started that? Yeah. He and left. he went on to create Stellar. Right. And I just, I don't see any point in that. Quite honestly, I don't understand how people see, value in something that's that's mutable and you don't 
really have a clue on inflation or anything. I mean, it's just so strange. It really is like, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I don't but really they, they see the, the numbers go up. It's all green. It looks good. Went up 200% in a few months. Right. Well, Ripple's been around for quite a long time too. I mean, it's, uh, it was, it was around very early. So, so it does have a mythology behind it. So people, so there is a myth that kind of follows XRP or Ripple. Um, that I don't know if they tried to break that with the the XRP thing, which is kind of strange. You think that they would want would want to to kind of ride that myth, but I guess legally they couldn't, and they needed to do what they needed to do legally regarding the protocol. But that should give everybody another heads up that that's just another red herring. All right, they had to do that because of legal ramifications, and why were they doing it? Because it's centralized and. And now they're trying to say that XRP isn't Ripple and Ripple isn't XRP and has nothing to do with each other. It's like totally ridiculous. It's almost like a comedy. It's funny that Zcash is doing the exact same, is using the same tactic. Right. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. They used to have the Zcash Foundation and now it's called the Electric Coin Foundation. They're trying to not associate the foundation with the coin. Right. This is after they like uh, took all the mining rewards, right? <laughs> this is after they... It's insane, them. but the point that I was trying to make is that you, you can associate an altcoin creator with the project, but in the case of Bitcoin, it's so mystical. You don't right. know who Satoshi is. A lot of people use the image of Dorian Nakamoto. Right. It's, Some, it's much safer that way. You know, it really is. Because, you know, those, those, those myths are meant to be eventually knocked down. And we don't want that. So it, it's actually, in the long run, it's, it, it's intriguing, but it's much safer for Bitcoin that it was like that. Um, which is fantastic, you know. It's interesting that, that that new information has come out about that other chat that might be Satoshi in Europe. Who? God, I forgot his name. Oh, thank God. I wasn't expecting to be interviewed today. But yeah, there was a, a developer that uh, it was some pretty significant evidence that, that uh, he, he could be Satoshi. The one who got involved with the drug cartel? I think that is the like LaRue? Yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. X? Yeah, was that the guy I'm thinking of? It was like, uh, just came out, what, about a couple weeks ago? A few weeks ago? The one who supposedly was presented by Craig Wright during the lawsuit documentation? No, I don't think that was the guy I'm talking about. I'll have to do, I'll, I'll send you a, I'll do some research and send you a message later. It would make some sense for Satoshi to be European, but my Satoshi is Nick Sabo, no matter what. I don't care if, if he is not, but he is smart enough to be. You know, and I don't I don't think that because he, he, he blocked me on Twitter for never, ever responding to him for some reason. <laughs> really? 
I've never ever tweeted to Nick Szabo. I've never responded to anything Nick Szabo ever said, and I'm blocked by Nick Szabo. So I don't, I don't understand that. But honestly, he's following me apparently. Oh yeah, nice. Well, that's definitely better than I'm gonna having. Better luck than having with Nick Szabo. He never interacted with anything that I posted. He sometimes retweets when you mention him and it's something favorable that he can use like to build up a portfolio or something. Right. I guess he, he likes getting praise for the work that he has done. Right. You know, there, I think there was some writing um, correlations to some of some Satoshi's writings that use the same kind of verbiage that Nick uses. Um, It makes sense if you look at the story and figure out the background and the timing and also how he went rogue for about two years or something. And around that time, Satoshi was active. And when Satoshi disappeared, he came back as Nick Sabo and started going to conferences and stuff. And he never explained why and what went on. But it's not this reason of perfect timing that I believe that he is Satoshi. It's just that he's so knowledgeable about so many topics. And he, he is very curious in nature and likes to cover all sorts of topics on his blog. And even though you're blocked on Twitter, you can check out his blog. And he even wrote about topics such as NASA. NASA, I'm sorry. I'm so tired. I, I cannot pronounce abbreviations properly but he he's just mind-blowing it's hard to comprehend all the information that he presents within one article i tend to think quite honestly that it was like a criminal type i don't know that's just me i think it, that it, it was a a criminal type that was inspired by BitTorrent and the thing the actions of like pirate bay and And I think it was just simply something that shallow. It wasn't like any of the hardcore devs that worked on that kind of cryptography early. I think it was just some cryptographer, obviously, that was very knowledgeable, but one that was had criminal intentions, strangely, that pulled it off, that knew that what he did would be effective at what he wanted it to do. Um, no. The fact that Satoshi was active on Bitcoin Talk and answered to all the questions of newbies and was so nice and humble and helpful just makes me think that there is no way this guy could have been malevolent. That's true, too. I mean, you're all right there. He wasn't on Bitcoin Talk and he, and he did uh, retort and interact, um, which, which would definitely lead to one to think that would probably be more Nick Zabo type. Could have been Hal Finney. He's a worthy candidate. I don't know why he would be so afraid of the CIA, though. You know, like, so when, 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 when Andreessen told him, hey, I, I got a meeting with the CIA next week, and then all of a sudden he disappeared, would Nick Z Zabo have that reaction? He's a private person. He doesn't like... I, I saw that he went to conferences and... I heard that he didn't speak to anyone outside of his stage presence. Right. He doesn't like to answer 
questions about himself. You can ask him about his work, but not about him as a person. See, that's a little bit, I don't know. That's, to me, that's strange, you know. But some people are like that, I guess. They're just very private people, and they need to be. That's how they kind of cope, because they need to be private and kind of deal with things. I respect that, and Nick Sabo has been involved in the field for a long time, since at least the early yeah. 90s, and he worked for David Chom at DG Cash and the Netherlands in the 90s. Right, yep. No, so, I, I agree. You know, it's not, it's not, uh, not to worry about, really. If he wants to be private, that's, he's entitled to that, and that's great. I think these cypherpunks are great examples of what we can be and how far we can go in terms of privacy. And I guess our grandparents were much more cautious about their public image. If they had access to social media, they would see it much more as a trap of revealing their secrets and exposing their weaknesses. Right. When we see something like Facebook, where we get encouraged to share our thoughts and post our pictures from vacations and interact with people and gain trust based on how much other people are willing to share. I don't think the generation of my grandparents would appreciate that. They just wanted to be private, to have a life of their own. They wanted to build some kind of public image, which was not necessarily what they were like, but what they were willing to present to the world. Right. I mean, there was a lot. Um, I agree with that 100%. You know, even something like when I was a kid, like even getting unemployment, you, you were never, ever, ever announcing that. You would you would want to keep that private. Um, so it was a much more modest time um, back then. So you... And it much, you're right, much more private, more modest, not a lot of that kind of thing. Um, nowadays, you get kids just posting on GoFundMe for, send me to Europe. I want to go to Europe. Pay for it. <laughs> that would never, ever, ever happen 20 years ago. Like, never. Like, and, and so it's, it's definitely a different culture. It's definitely, definitely changing. And I don't, I don't. I don't think it's a bad thing at all. I think it's totally natural. Generational changes are nothing to be feared and it's entirely natural. And the older generation always feels uncomfortable with the younger one. Always. I mean, uh, I read Robert Green. He just wrote a new book and he, in there he cites where on a Sumerian tablet 3,000 years ago, one of the older generations says the new generation is lazy and can't do any work and it's just of no worth i mean this that was three thousand years ago (laughs) so it's it's always like that where the older generation thinks the new one is lazy and yada 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 i guess we haven't changed much as a species right yeah i mean it's kind of think that we're different (laughs) time it's interesting i mean you get people also that think we're like computers so, I mean, even Turing, I think in the end, thought that he was simply a computer almost. Like, there was no divine anything there, he didn't think. 
Um, so, I mean, that's, it's kind of strange how, how people kind of formulate their, their framework of, of what and who they are. I used to think I was a computer back in the fourth grade when I was going to math competitions. Yeah. So you're a mentat, huh? <laughs> uh, I, it was hard for me to identify with the other kids. And I was building this kind of story in my mind that this is why I'm different. I'm supposed to be a computer, right? I'm right. like a cyborg. I watched the Terminator 2 back when I was about eight or something. Yeah. And that whole idea of a human form with robotic features, that was so interesting. Right. It opened up my imagination to something else like, hey, maybe I'm different from all the other kids. But as time went by, I just got used to what I am. You accept your limitations much easy, much more easily as you get older. Right. Even right now, sometimes I'm not happy with myself, but at the end of the day, there's only so much I can do. And having experienced much more by interacting with others, having understood that not even when you have all the talents that maybe I desire, you have a happy and fulfilled life. Well, at least I'm trying. Right. But I think that happiness is definitely a result of connecting with other people, like having a real connection with your family members and friends. Um, and unfortunately, technology takes away from that, I think, a little bit and adds to it, too. So you can actually find more friends and become friends with more people. But then you also have to keep in mind that it, the really depth of the matter is your human connection. Um, and, and that feeling, like that feel that you get uh, of, of looking at your family member and knowing that they're safe and, and happy. You get that feeling of happiness too, like you're happy with them, for them. And I don't, you don't get that with technology, like if you're looking at your family on, on a, you know, on a Facebook page. You know, it, it really takes a human connection and interaction to to get to get down to those 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 levels. And 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 it's unfortunate for for Nick Zabo if he's if if he doesn't really allow that too much, unfortunately. Like I think that's a real beauty in life that you know that you can connect with many different people on a human level. Um, and it's much better in person than it is uh, on Twitter or anything of that nature. I don't know. That's just an assumption. Maybe that he has friends. He's more reserved. We know that he was a friend, he was friends with Hal Finney. Mm. And they were both super smart in terms of cryptography and computer science. Sometimes I, I think that intelligence can be a curse as you find it harder to relate to other people. Right, no, I totally 110% agree with that. When you're just average, you don't really care about stuff. Right. And you're just happy to be around people and you enjoy everything. You don't think too much. Right. No, I 
<laughs> I know. And then you can turn into the bad guy by doing so very, very quickly. Um, uh, but, you know, so it's, it's that, it's that human, the human thing though. I think that makes it easier. Like, so if you're talking to somebody directly, you'll start to even know that they're, they're average and they just like to try to get by in life that if you're with them and you're talking to them face to face and feeling and understanding their situation, then it becomes a lot, lot easier to get along and, and understand really. You know? uh, so that, that's why the, the social culture as far as online is frightening to me because it disconnects people from their actual connections. And feelings you know what i like about bitcoin in this regard and how it can make the world better huh. if, you, if you have no choice and you don't have any kind of atm and you have no access to financial services but you want to exchange bitcoin you're going to have to meet somebody right yeah and you're great. going to do bitcoin for cash swaps yeah and it's during these moments that you realize that the world works even outside of government's regulation and that this reputation system is actually much more powerful than any government agency that protects your consumer rights and which allows you to maybe start a lawsuit against any company which infringes your rights. Right. Well, the law is just as bad as government right now. And... You know, this all goes back to, unfortunately, the church. You know, the church, a thousand years ago, really started propagating something called natural law. And basically, that's their law. You know, they're saying that natural law is you know, natural, but it's actually their law. It's actually church's law. Right? So that was propagated uh, into normal law. And like maritime law, things like that. And Government comes hand in hand with law. That's what people don't realize. They say they want to get rid of government. Well, they're going to have to deal with law as well because it comes hand in hand. That oppression comes with law. And and I think I think uh, I think Nick and Vlad are starting to have a debate online regarding just those issues regarding governance and law and, uh, on these networks. Um, but it, it definitely comes hand in hand. Law is definitely abused. Uh, and it's used as a tool of oppression by people that have money and it's just as bad as government quite honestly That's I don't I think. think law in itself as a concept is bad as we're supposed to have some kind of rules that we agree on and help us live in peace Right. Um, if there was the very basic protocol laws, I would agree with you. Like you can't get overcomplicated like in law as you can in really anything else that, that needs to stand the test of time. It must be simple. It must, you know, be, you know, decentralized or basically open and apply to everybody. And um, that, that's how I think law could work. It's, it's very simple, not very many, not very many laws, but there is a structure, and there is no force 
uh, for re retaliation um, for most laws. Uh, uh, if, but right now, as it stands, it's so conv convoluted and, and complicated and so overdone with the government itself that, that they're like two, two heads on the same hydra. And, but, but I agree with you. I'd much rather have a few basic laws rather than complete anarchy. Although I do think probably complete anarchy would work better than what we have right now. <laughs> well, that's debatable, but also a valid point to some extent. If you agree that human nature is good and that we only have small exceptions which make us criminals or, and by criminals, I mean murderers or thieves. Right. I do. I do. I think that human nature is, is, is good for the most part. Yeah. Um, but I think that human nature, a part of that human nature is, is also a mob mentality, which is not good. So it's a human nature that, you know, when people get together, they kind of morph into a single thing. And that can be bad if, you're, if, if, it's, if it's a negative and it's destructive. But I think that's also human nature too. So things, so I think as an individual, a human in his human nature is, is good. But I think that there are certain aspects of human nature that are not good. That you see rear its ugly head from time to time. Supposedly, that's why we have the law, because human nature is flawed. And we are greedy animals that seek to accumulate everything for themselves. And that's when you need some kind of objective third party to tell you that you should stop and you're breaking the rules. And it works with Bitcoin because it's a protocol. It's just code right. on which you agree and you can enforce it by running your own node. But with people, that's a lot more complicated. Right. Uh, you know, I think there's even a crypto project working on that. Uh, I think it's called uh, Aragon. So it'd be like more of a basic people governmental thing. So they're working on that kind of government, um, which is an interesting thing that they're working on. But I, I do, I do think that it, like it, it goes so deep. Like, so that's why Bitcoin is so important because it affects all these things, right? And that's why we've talked about them during the podcast. And, and if, if people would just just take the time to research Bitcoin, and I'm not saying they'll jump on board, I'm just saying if people just take a breath and understand what we're trying to say in these podcasts and, and that it can be very important. It can be very powerful. And it's, it's exciting to be a part of. But honestly, it's exciting to see this rise of this trust network that is, is now using more power than the state of Israel. Um, and it's only growing. And now you can do satellite transactions and now you don't even need the internet to, to actually send Bitcoin to somebody. And, and now we're having layers built up, you know, base layer and third layer. It's just, just really, it's really fascinating to see it being built without the central authority. You know, it's really, truly fascinating. It's, it's just really a phenomenon that people, I don't think people really understand how important it is yet. Even me, like even, even us don't really understand how big and important this really actually is or can be. 
Sometimes I wonder how the history books will talk about our times. Right. Yeah. You know, it's but that it, that depends on the historians and the establishment which pays them to write about our times. As we can them. either be some kind of folk heroes like the cowboys of the Wild West trying to do justice according to their own rules. Or we can be those who brought humanity to some kind of awakening state. But hopefully now that we have a blockchain, that, 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 that's not going to matter. Now we can have some objective proofs to go back and look at. Um, so I think, you know, in time, like, you know, you're not going to, you want to store everything on the Bitcoin chain, that, which is why I think different protocols will survive. So, you know, take a, uh, take a protocol like um, Hush, which is, a, you know, something familiar with Zcash, but an offshoot that you'll be able to upload a file that you can refer to. So say you're a journalist and you can put your, your stories right on the blockchain that could be seen a hundred years later and can't be tampered with. That's very powerful as far as the, as far as truth and keeping history the way it should be and truthful. Um, like, so from this point in time, we might see like history, it, it, it's not going to be so easy for those powerful people to just rewrite history anymore. Because there, there will be actual verifiable proof of situations um, and stories that you can go back and actually see. Hopefully, they're going to have this podcast too and realize that we're not really villains, are we? Right. <laughs> no, no, no villains. Uh-oh. No more of that. I'll let you take the call, but before we end the, this interview, I feel like I should let you talk more about yourself and your work and tell people how they can follow you on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Cyanoc Records. And okay, was, uh, can you spell it? Uh, S-I-A-Y-N-O-Q Records, which is R E. C-O-R-D-S um, on Twitter. And um, I just uh, now started actually interacting on Twitter at uh, the start of this year. Uh, I had an account for some time, but I never really interacted on it because um, I was a more introverted fellow. Um, uh, Sinoc Record was a dream of mine. I released a um, two releases, actually. Um, I found an artist called uh, Universal Mind, who his real name is Vinnie Twirewiler, who was in Michigan, just an incredible artist. Um, and I released uh, his album, uh, Scribble. And I also released a uh, co-release with Hummus Records in Switzerland, uh, The Fawn. And that was just basically a dream fulfilled. And uh, I'll eventually start back up again, but at, uh, a few years ago, I went through a divorce and all that kind of stuff got put on hold. Um, so I'm also, I'm writing a book. I've been in several bands, toured the world there, um, uh, do artwork. So I'm basically just an artist and um, I really enjoy life and, and speaking about philosophy and things and meeting other people. Sounds great. Do you also produce music? 
Uh, I would like to. I mean, I think I, I quite honestly, I think I really have a, a good grasp on on uh, feeling and human feelings, and 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 um, and I really think that's what a good music producer does is actually brings out the feeling that a band is trying to convey, or or the emotions that they're trying to touch, or something of that nature. Um, as far as a music producer that is just you know bankrolls people, that's not what I do. I would like to be music production to where I would actually influence and bring out better art in the bands or artists. But I think, I, yeah, it's something that I'm looking to do definitely in the future. Okay. Now I know where I can send my demos and my mixtapes next time. <laughs> nice. I'll definitely listen. I'm not sure if you're going to like my punk rock, but whatever. At least I'll be honest. You know, I'm not a guy that'll beat around the bush. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a Virgo in triplicity, so I'm highly critical. <laughs> and uh, so I would definitely let you know, um, truthfully, what I personally thought of it, if that's good or bad or in between. Okay, Shaitan or Shaitan, how do you pronounce it? Shaitan or Shaitan? Shaitan is fine, yeah. Shaitan. Sounds like Satan with extra steps. It, it, it is kind of a little bit of a reference to uh, the process of, uh, how should I call it? Um, Shaitan is basically, you know, the good and the evil and the process that it might take to get back from one side to the other. So it, it also means, you know, uh, uh, Kind of a desert demon <laughs> but uh i really i really thought uh that you know I, it comes from dune obviously and it, it, it's i believe it's in uh, heretics or god god emperor where they said you know the god emperor says that they will in the future they're going to call me not the god emperor but they will call me shaitan and that just means that over time things change but yet stay the same Hopefully, what Bitcoin is going to be the same. We're going to change the narrative, but the protocol is going to be the same. Exactly. Exactly. So thank you very much for this. I will try to post it within a couple of days. Okay. Yeah. Thanks uh, so much for having me, Vlad. It was uh, it was a pleasure, and I had a great time chatting with you. And hopefully, we can do it again sometime. Likewise. Excellent. So talk to you later. Later, Vlad. Have Bye. Good night. By the way, <laughs> thanks. It's close to midnight here.